that honoured and humbled to have been asked to be your keynote speaker. I'll begin congratulating Dave and helpers, including Eris, for their diligence and work in arranging this function, especially Dave for his dedication in compiling so much historical record of those Cambridge folk who were members of the RNZAF in any capacity during World War II. Actually, part of the theme of what I am about to sort of cover here is to emphasise the importance of not only the air crews but also the ground crews, without whom we would never have got airborne and we wouldn't have had any weaponry. And so, therefore, they were equally important as the people that flew the aircraft. And also, a point I'd like to emphasise is that the trauma and stresses of World War II was borne far more by the parents and next of kin than by the participants in the field. Uh, as one of them for a while in the Pacific, although we couldn't go down the road to the pub at night for a drink after uh, flying, as perhaps they could in Europe, at least we could go for swims during the day at the local beach, play bas baseball or softball, cricket, and generally lead a fairly um, comfortable sort of life, apart from the times when we were at, on uh, operations. So the people who mainly bore the brunt of <coughs> World War II, in my opinion, were the parents next of kin, not many of us were married at that stage, but a few were married. And they're the ones who 24 hours a day had it in the back of their minds or wondering what was happening to their next of kin overseas. And uh, also watching every day for that telegram that had a very unfortunate uh, appearance too often. Um, any of you who are of my generation, and looking around, I think there are a few, they will well remember that there were times during those six long and seemingly interminable years that victory in both Europe and Pacific appeared far from assured, with the distinct possibility that England could fall to the Germans in the earlier years, and a bit later on, New Zealand to the Japanese. I can recall as a member of the Tirapa Home Guard, prior to joining the Air Force, how we conducted mock exercises armed with 22 rifles and shotguns, and even used broomsticks for rifle drill. And that was with Japanese forces barely one day away from New Zealand by air, even, even in the C-47 Dakota era of aircraft, only about one day away from here. And but for the US Marines at Guadalcanal, they could have landed in New Zealand virtually unopposed as they did in Singapore. Now, we, um, our, fam our family did receive one of these telegrams when my brother, who went to Canada for training, I stayed in New Zealand, but my brother was three years older than myself, and he went to Canada, and he hadn't been there long when we had a telegram uh, telling us that he was dangerously ill with meningitis. In fact, it was a bit, I uh, can't think of the right word for it, but it was strange that 
I think he was sent when he did go because of an outbreak which prevented some others being sent. So, but obviously he took the, uh, the, the meningitis um, with him because, anyway, um, after, when he was ill in Canada, <coughs> about that time he met a Canadian girl and he married and she is here today as my wife. After the war, when my wife was brought to New Zealand by the New Zealand government as a war widow. And so when I eventually got out of the Air Force, we actually finished up being married and subsequently had our families uh, spread around the world now. Uh, a factor <coughs> to which I'd like to refer is the part that, well, this is just my own personal view, that Lady Luck played in the individual experiences of both airmen individually and families in general. The overall casualty rate was 4,300 New Zealanders killed out of 13,235 who trained for air crew, which gives a 32.5% loss ratio, which is virtually one third. So of all those who trained for air crew, one in three didn't come back. In the case of our own family, including cousins, five of us served overseas. That was myself, my brother, went to Europe, shot down in the Lancaster and killed. My cousin Kevin from Hamilton, he had the dubious honour of being the first member of the New Zealand Spitfire Squadron number 485, later commanded by Bill Wells from Cambridge. And Kevin had the dubious distinction of being the first member of the squadron killed in, in an accident. And that was a very tragic situation or occurrence because his brother Bernard, also from Hamilton, where we moved from Cambridge to Hamilton in 35, and his, his brother was in the Navy and he was visit, he, he visited Bert, uh, Kevin at the RAF station and Kevin took Bernard up for a flight of a, a Miles Magister trainer. Then he hopped into his Spitfire and five minutes later he crashed right in front of his brother. So he did a real copper cane trick. Copper Cain was killed much the same way, doing a role in a Spitfire at low level. It may or may not have con contributed, but many of you would know that the early, the Merlin engines in the Spitfires couldn't, they didn't operate upside down, whereas the Messerschmitts had fuel-injected motors, and they could. And that caught a few people out on Spitfires when they were attempting these things at low level. Uh, my other, so that was two cousins, my brother, and I had another cousin, Tony Cox from Christchurch, and he arrived up in Cambridge, although I wasn't living here, then we were in Tirapa, but we all gathered at my grandfather's home in Hamilton Road here, at a house called Mulgoa, you've probably never heard of it, but anyway, it's up near the water tower on the right hand side, and all the Cox and uh, the Peaks were related to the Peak families out at Radarani, and so all, all the Waikato relatives gathered there for Tony uh, uh, on his way to Singapore, and he uh, wanted to visit us before leaving. That was in uh, just near the end of 1941, 
Pearl Harbor was 7th of December, this is about October, November. By the, I'm just checking on the date here, anyway, by, I think it was the 18th of January, yeah. 18th of January, he was shot down because he was flying buffaloes in, in the New Zealand Buffalo Squadron at Singapore and most of them were killed in the first few weeks of the, of the Japan War. So that, that was our, our family lost, my brother and three cousins. Um, I, I was spared very luckily, or I put it down to luck, others don't. <laughs> uh, when on my own 20th birthday, I happened to be involved in a, an operation where in the morning, I thought I was lucky because I had done about nine days flying in a row at Green Island, this was, and I was given the day off, or had a schedule for a day off, rostered for a day off. And so I spent the morning lying on a raft in the lagoon and looking at the tropical fish and all that, thinking about home. And But by the end of the day, I was um, involved in a rescue operation for one of our pilots who got hit by ACAC over a bow. Japanese uh, uh, Japanese base, largest one in the South Pacific, and it was about 120 miles from Green Island where I was based at the time. So I finished up at a flight of 15 Corsairs, whose job was to escort and protect a New Zealand Ventura bomber, which dropped some bamboo rafts to our pilot who tried to swim his way out of the Japanese harbour. He was a bit outnumbered because there was a hundred thousand Japanese all around him. So anyway, he did swim to the harbour entrance and then the tide took him back. And not long before dusk, the Ventura bomber dropped these rafts hoping he could paddle his way out that evening. And the 15 Corsairs, of which I was one of them, we set off back towards Green Island and um, went about halfway back, just approaching dusk, we ran into a a tropical front. It was black as the ace of spades from one horizon to the other. I had never even flown a Corsair at night, not once. Each time we'd gone to fly, the weather was no good, so we didn't fly. But anyway, so I found myself trying to fly in tight formation, pitch darkness, heavy rain, couldn't see a thing. And in endeavouring to turn my cockpit lighting on, which I didn't do before getting into the front, I must have bumped, it was down on the right hand side down here, there was 24 switches and one of them was a, the cockpit lighting, and one of them was a battery switch, well I apparently hit my battery switch instead of the lighting and I never had electrics from then on. So I found myself sitting in a course here in pitch darkness, not knowing which direction. Well just prior to that, uh, I got spatially disorientated, most of you have heard of it probably, where you don't know if you're flying the right way up or upside down, and I thought I was flying on my side. And I was trying to sit behind the wingtip light of my leader, that's all I could see is light. And I was so disorientated that I thought I was falling away and I'd slide up and down the rudder, and his wingtip light disappeared under my wing, so I peeled off, and from there, from there on, I was on my own. So, anyway, it, take a long while to fully describe everything that happened in this flight, but 
I sat eventually went on to my instruments, which was just the the, the luminous needle for the altimeter and the little artificial horizon, which luckily I had uncaged before getting into the weather. And that's the only two instruments I had, so I was able to write the aircraft and pull it up. And when I actually went on to instruments, my altimeter needle was just one blob of luminous straight up and down, which was zero, and that's the height I was when I went on to instruments, zero feet. Because I didn't know till later that our leader and all the leaders had been flying at about 300 feet to try and get under the weather back at Green Island because the cloud base there apparently was 500 feet. So all the course airs were flying below that so that they would see the runway when they reached there. I didn't know that because I hadn't been looking inside the cockpit. Well, anyway, to cut a long story short, I was flying complete blackness, couldn't see the end of my nose. Couldn't, I didn't know which direction I was flying, I didn't know where Green Island was, and I had about 20 minutes fuel left, so after about 10 minutes of that, and I was waiting for, trying to decide whether to let the engine stop, or, uh, uh, or if the engine stopped, I'd have to have um, ditched in the water, but I couldn't see the water, so I wouldn't know when I was going to hit it. And if I bailed out, I wouldn't know where the water was, and I was thinking that, parachute will land all over the top of me and I'll be drowned. And apart from that, with sharks, shark problems, <laughs> my chances weren't very good. And I was just thinking the parents back at home here, because my brother had already been shot down, and cousins, two of them had been killed. So I was just thinking of the parents, and there was this violent flash of lightning, luckily for me, and uh, I was right over the top of palm trees. So that's how I actually survived that flight. So, as I say, our family loss of four out of five was nearly five out of five. Anyway, that was just one of numerous lucky escapes I had before I left the Air Force. Now, I'll return to David's website. I do have a computer and um, I have been into the website www.cambridgeairforce.org.nz and from it I actually did learn a couple of things the very first time I peeked at his website there's two small matters which I just cover briefly uh, I was born in 1925 and lived at French Pass we had a 365 acre farm out towards Whitewall four miles from here that, uh, called French Pass, you go down the gully, and that gully was through our farm. And um, in 1933 it must have been, because I, I can still clearly remember, we left there in 35, went to Tirapa, because my father, my parents thought that my brother and I would be better off going to the Hamilton uh, secondary schools, even before the, today's problem in Cambridge. <laughs> so, uh, that's happening in 1933 because uh, on, on this particular day I heard an aircraft, and it's possibly at the first that I ever saw or heard, flying over the, the farm heading up towards Whitehall from sort of Cambridge direction and the motor was spluttering, it was really spluttering and backfiring and whatever and I know that we did hear a few days later the plane had crash landed up at Whitehall 
Well, only a couple of days ago, reading the website, I discovered that the plane was actually Stan Blackmore, who many of you will have heard of because he's a pioneer Waikato aviator. Stan Blackmore was flying his de Souter when the engine stopped, apparently from running out of fuel, or fuel, a fuel problem anyway. And as his passenger, there was a passenger in the plane apparently, which I didn't know, but I had seen him, and that was Scotty Fraser, the parachutist. And so that, so I've eventually learnt that the plane I heard spluttering along was Stan Blackmore with Scotty Fraser on board. Uh, I think the planet landed and tipped over in a rabbit burrow or something. Uh, uh, I can recall in mid-30s or early 30s seeing Scotty Fraser landing in a paddock. I have an idea it was in the direction of Howtapu from here, just out of town. I don't know, Shirley, you can't, you, you don't remember that far back. No, not quite. <laughs> Does anyone here happen to remember flying going on in the 30s out? Stan Blackmore used to land in this paddock and uh, drop Scotty Fraser. Nobody here can remember that particular. I took off with Blackmore from the race course about 1930, 31. Okay. And uh, they used to. Well, maybe it was the race course, but perhaps it didn't look like a race course. And well, over the road at Taylor's Paddock. Taylor's Paddock, that's where yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, I can remember seeing Scotty Fraser come down in his parachute and he just jam it all up into a bag of, that came with it and ready for his next jump. But he didn't do it very, very scientifically, it didn't appear. The other thing I got from uh, David's website was the mention of Ted Harvey. How many people here have heard of Ted Harvey? Very few, a few. Well, Ted Harvey was a pioneer aviator who his parents his father was a minister in Cambridge at some stage around about the 30s apparently. He wasn't born here, but he became quite a, a well-known aviator later on. In fact, from and just after the war, I, got out of, I came back from Japan in 1947 and I was in a boarding house in Wellington. I was working for Mutual Life and Citizens Assurance Company head office in Wellington. And I was in a boarding house and every night for tea, this Ted Harvey would come come in and sit down and have a meal with us and tell us where he had been during the day. He was working for the Shell Oil Company and they gave him an aeroplane to um, travel around in. Well, I'm reading now the website and I didn't know then that he was uh, associated with Cambridge and not only that, he with barely a hundred hours up or something in his logbook, very little flying anyway, he broke the New Zealand height altitude record, I think it was Gypsy Moth, uh, 18,400 feet in a gypsy moth. And he also, about that time, was the first man to fly from North Cape to the Bluff in one day. He um, actually took off for the flight at Kaitaia, then went up to North Cape, and then right down to Bluff with a number of landings on the way. But his overall time was 16 hours, I think it was. It must have been it must have been around about the longest day. I'm just quickly trying to see, here we go. 16 hours, 10 minutes. So anyway, that's Ted Harvey and he was associated with Cambridge. Um, during the war he did hold some 
reasonably high positions in the Air Force. I'll just quickly do a wee bit of nostalgia of Cambridge as I remember. I went to Cambridge Primary School. Um, I was born in 25, so about 1930, I think even about four years old, I think we were started to go to school then. It was 1929 or 30. And this morning, I drove past the old primary school the first time for many years, and it doesn't look like it's changed much, or it's in pretty good shape. And the fire station right beside it, and I can remember even then, when the fire siren went, and it was pretty close, mate, it's about deaf and you, one of our teachers would just head for the window and throw the window open and dive out the window and go to the fire station. <laughs> he was a volunteer fireman. Now, in those years, we left Tirapa in 1935. We left Cambridge in 1935 and moved to Tirapa. And up until then, our transportation into Cambridge by horse and gig, driven by my mother, and pulled by one of our two Shetland ponies, I still remember their name, uh, Gypsy and Peggy. Uh, arriving in Cambridge, we would drive to what's called the stables. And I just, when I was outside, somewhere about where Countdown is, just down, down the road here, in that direction, that's where the stables were. There was an old, old brick building, no doubt long removed. And so we'd leave the pony and the gig in the stables and do our shopping and then go home to the farm and the gig again. Actually, there was an aeroplane stuck in the corner of that building, the first one I ever saw, and it was, it would, be, it would have been a gypsy moth. It was a biplane with wings folded back, which I think the gypsy moths could do, I think, have folded wings. And it was painted red, I think, and it was stuck in, in the, the corner of the stables, and I have an idea that it may have been Ted Harvey's plane. Now, in, in those days, I see a sign up saying it's Victoria Park now across the road with the sports ground. I wonder if many of you can remember it being called the Government Acre. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it was always the Govey. As kids, we just called go to the Govey, and that was the Government Acre. That that was now what is now uh, Victoria Park. When we moved to Tiraba. My father really did um, go high-tech and, and we bought a Model T Ford. And I still remember it had one seat across the front and a tray at the back. And I still remember holding our kitten in a sack as I sat on it all the way from here to Tirapa. It probably took about two hours, I'd say. Because <laughs> the road wasn't very bright in those days. I'm fairly certain that in that, that year, the... Uh, oh, Cambridge-Hamilton Highway was still metal, I'm pretty certain, in the 30s. In fact, my grandmother had an old baby Austin, and I remember riding that one day when the, uh, the windscreen fell off of corrugations. Well, that was 1935. Only nine years later, I was flying a... 417-mile-an-hour Corsair powered by a 2,250-horsepower engine. That was only nine years after we had Model T Ford. <laughs> so it's a bit incongruous, I guess. Of course, my brother's best friend was Jim Ross of Cambridge, and his widow Shirley is here today, and um, in fact, she's the only face I know amongst everyone here. 
Perhaps I know some others, but I'm not recognizing. There were three, uh, actually, in the website it mentions uh, that there were 155 names of New Zealanders, ah, New Zealand, Cambridge, Cambridgeites, who were born and bred in Cambridge, who served in the Air Force. So there's a lot I didn't know. But there were three Ross boys I remember well. Some of you may have known one or other. There was Jim, that's Shirley's husband, and he founded Ross Todd Motors. There was Fatty or Ian Ross, and there was Tom or Toby, Toby Ross. Tom and Ian were cousins, but Jim was not related, I don't think, to them. Just as a side note to that one, I was stationed at Guadalcanal for a month in 1944, and I did hop on a some sort of landing barge or something, go across to Florida Island, just off Guadalcanal, to look up Jim, and because uh, I knew he was there as a flight engineer on the Catalina flying boats. And uh, the day I met Jim, I also met Toddy, which is the first time I ever met Toddy. And of course we didn't know then that they would come home and go into business in a big way. I also knew Jim's sisters very well at that stage. My brother and I used to visit their home a lot. There was Joan, Betty and Mona. Mona wouldn't be here today, would she? No, she's not here, but it's she's in Hamilton. Oh, I see, Hamilton. yeah. But I haven't seen her since 1935, probably. But I did know her quite well. In fact, pardon? No, no, okay. Um, but just mentioning those girls, Joan, Betty, and Mona, I knew the family fairly well through my brother being very close to them too, although they were all a bit older than me. And when I was buying courses at Ardmore, well, I'd come over Cambridge. It was only, I think it was about 12 minutes down here from, from Ardmore and of course here. And I would spend a good half hour aerobatting over Cambridge. I'd do two or three dozen loops without stopping. I'd roll, barrel roll around and around for half an hour. And Betty used to go out and wave tea towels to me in the back, on the back lawn. I still remember that. Now, of the more prominent members on the website, of course, is Bill Wells. Now, I guess, the hands up those who have never heard of Bill Wells. Nobody. <laughs> yeah. Bill Wells was one of leading ace pilots in New Zealand, uh, New Zealand was in the RAF. And he came from Cambridge. And when he joined the Air Force, my brother bought his car. It was an old, square, wooden, I'm going to say fuselage, that's not the right word. A wooden bodied Morris 8 was a square model. And I remember when you went around the corner, the body became separated from the rest of the car sometimes. <laughs> anyway, that was Bill's car before he joined the Air Force. Well, by the time he retired in 1960, he stayed in after the war in the RAF. He retired to take up farming in Britain. When, when David mentioned that he had a prominent Cambridgeite to be the keynote speaker, I thought, oh, they must be getting Bill Wells out here. <laughs> anyway, he, Bill had a bit more active combat than I did. 
In fact, by the time I got up in the Pacific, we became bomber pilots, and we were dive bomber pilots instead of being fighter pilots. However, if the war had gone on, if, if the atomic bomb hadn't been dropped, my next tour was to be to, uh, we were re-equipping with Mustangs to go to Borneo to join the Australians, and Borneo is next door to the Philippines, and so we would have had a much more exciting time. And again, I possibly wouldn't have got home if that bomb hadn't been dropped. So. Anyway, Bill Wells' record was 13 German aircraft destroyed, 3 probables, 15 damaged, which is quite a... to, uh, to realise that he himself remained in one piece was quite a feat. I see in David's website that there's 44 names on the Roll of Honour, which is a wee bit less than the 33%, but anyway, I like the overall loss ratio, but it does go well towards it. There's 44 Cambridge names killed. I, I know a few of them, Don Taylor and different ones, quite a few of them I know reading through the website. I mentioned how Bernard, that was my cousin, uh, Kevin's brother, Kevin was killed in the Spitfire, and his brother Bernard was killed uh, just three years later defusing a German mine in the Mediterranean, so that's what got him. Uh, it's interesting about aeroplanes being struck by trees and things. Um, I read in the website how Don Taylor was struck by a lamppost when he uh, was attacking a marshalling yard in German railway system in Holland and that was quite late in the war, early 1945, and he hit his, his wing on a lamp post, so it was obviously very low. Well, we had exactly the same happen to a young friend of mine in the Pacific, two weeks after the war finished, his name's Alec Teshner. The Australians moved into Rebel, and they had all their trucks lined up along the uh, the runway of the, the large airport there at Bunakanau Airfield and um, so young Alec decided to do a bit of a victory roll. He wasn't in a Spitfire either. We, the Corsair engine would go inverted but he still got struck by a palm tree and killed himself two weeks after the war finished. So, a lot of those tragedies. I'll, I'll finish now with brief reference to what really was a a terrific um, experience for my wife and myself in 1999. As I mentioned earlier, our kids are scattered around the world a bit. Uh, we have two, two daughters generally living in Australia, but on base and travel around a bit. Uh, both are families, so have, and we've got a son in England in Kent. And he, he's actually a cabbie, about the only cabbie that's gone right through the knowledge, they call it, to be a London cabbie. And he's been doing that since 1990. In 1999, he was interested for us to go and visit my brother's grave, which uh, we never had previously been to, and it's now in Hanover. But just before we went, we learnt from a, a very valuable book that's been published with the full story on every New Zealander killed. I've actually got the book in here and which I learnt that he crashed near a village called Rimbeck. So our son Greg said, 
uh, I'd like to drive us across to Rimbeck and see the site where my brother was killed, initially killed and buried during the war. They were interred through the war in the local Catholic cemetery. So we left Kent about 4 a.m. in the morning. We drove, we sit in your car and go through the channel on the train, it's just a train, yeah. And you just drive off the other end and you just keep driving. Well, uh, talking about Helen Clark doing her 130 k's and how you know, dangerous all that is, we did 1,100 miles, not kilometres, in two days because from the moment we reached France, going through Belgium, Holland, whatever, until uh, we got to Germany, to Rimbeck, and you're sitting on 130k the whole time. That's the medium speed lane. The, the right-hand lane there is the slow lane. Everyone does 100. The centre lane, 130, and the outside lane is virtually open slather right through Europe. And there, were no, there were no borders between countries. You didn't know which country you're in, except by seeing the signs for the cities as you're passing them on this highway. Anyway, by 5 o'clock the same day, we, we'd gone 500-odd miles and arrived at Rimbeck at 5 in the afternoon. Within half an hour, we were being shown the, the Catholic cemetery where my brother and his seven members of his crew were all buried. That's his crew there with a Stirling bomber. They actually flew Stirlings on operational training and they just converted to Lancaster's uh, for operations. And so that happens to be a Stirling with radial engines, whereas the Lancaster had the Merlin engines. And that's the same crew as we lost. My brother's here, he was the captain. The boy on the end here is Australian. Uh, he's a Canadian navigator, and the four on the right are all English air gunners. And uh, after they went missing, my mother had uh, letters from various of the other mothers. And since then, I have actually visited this Australian boy's uh, sister in Australia, too. Anyway, within half an hour of arriving in Rubeck, an elderly German who saw the plane crashing, it's 2 a.m. in the morning, 25th of March, 44, and the plane was burning as it came down, shot down by a night fighter. And there's a historian who's written this book of all the records of every airman. He actually has all the German records and he virtually knows who shot down who and the time and everything else. And so we know, that's, I wrote to him and said, how did you know he was shot down by a night fighter? He said, well, I've got this document with a lot of numbers on it and he knows exactly which one shot down a plumber in that place. So the, that, this book is... It was only from that book that we learned where they were shot down because after the war they were reinterred at Hanover so the following day we went up to Hanover spent a couple of hours there and I videoed what moved yeah video camera I video camera oh about 60 New Zealand ones and for the Auckland Museum I told them I was going so I took photos for the Auckland Museum but anyway uh, this, after being taken to the cemetery, within another half hour, we were all, a group of us, just my, my, my wife, my son and, and myself, plus a few Germans, family, 
uh, we were then taken up to the crash site uh, it was only about a mile from the village on the side of the hill and so I've actually stood at the very spot where my brother crashed and that then after that we were taken back to the house I went and knocked on a, on a well I didn't knock on a door there was an old German outside the gate and I stopped and he couldn't speak English and so he went in and got the younger member of the family because we found the old Germans couldn't speak English at all but the young ones all can speak English so and the younger boy took us to the cemetery, etc. So, uh, so after we actually left the crash site, we then went and were given a meal at the German home. And by the time we left to go to a hotel overnight before driving to Hanover, the elderly German gentleman there, he had his arms around me and he was crying. You know, he was really affected. In fact, they got a big globe out and they put it on the table. We're outside, it was summertime, and we're out on the patio. And they put this globe there so they could see where New Zealand was. <laughs> Probably never heard of it before. But. Anyway, to finish the story off, there's, a, there's an interesting ending to it. About two weeks after we arrived back in New Zealand, we had sent to us uh, the boy that drove us around. He went to a local newspaper and gave the newspaper the story about our visit. I've got it all here somewhere. So here's the boy there and his, his fiancée who's at the house. And I gave him a copy of my second book and it had this photo of my, my brother's crew in the book. And so he gave it all to the local newspaper and that's the new big article in the German newspaper about our visit. And this is the spot where the plane was shot down. Well, two weeks after we arrived home, a lady had produced and gave it to Florian, the German boy, a photo of herself and a couple of friends, or sister and another friend, standing in the wreckage of my brother's plane. And here it is here. That lady's still alive, the one in the middle, the one in the middle still living in the village. And that's the record, you can see the propeller part of the tailplane, and that's the records of my brother's Lancaster. So all that came about was just from an unannounced arrival in a German village, and we finished up with all that information. So. Okay, well, I'll call it quits on that. That's enough, obviously. So I hope that I haven't bored you too much. Not at all. And... Yeah, my mother was away at, uh, at, at uh, Tirapa. Oh, were you at Tirapa? Yes. Oh, goodness me. Yeah. She, she uh, had my bicycle cut down into a lady's bike and she used to ride it. <laughs> yes, yes, that's interesting. Mm, my mother. <laughs> she was in the stores there, babe. Can I have just one question? Sure. Was the pilot Ethel Kilner that tried to get out of the harbour? Which have you the one the one you you were trying to to um, in the raft in the Pacific? Ah, oh, now that was another tragedy. <laughs> the pilot who was shot down was uh, Frank Keith from Auckland, and see this is another whole lot of stories actually. <laughs> he he got hit by Akak and caught fire. 
Don't go far any bailed out. We left him. When I first arrived, I was flying with the CO actually, and I did a couple of runs, high speed runs past him, and we managed to find him. And he was breaststroking madly, and he'd been shot down at 10 in the morning, and this was 4 in the afternoon. And he was still breaststroking, but the type brought him in. We left and returned to Green Island, and uh, a German, uh, Japanese officer who turned out, his name was Minoru Fujita and he was a naval officer whose ship had been sank and was in the harbour and he sent a boat out. He was in charge of a work party growing vegetables actually and they used to have binoculars looking out for us because we would attack them. <laughs> so and he, with their binoculars they saw the pot in the water so they sent a boat out and got him. Now this will interest our padre here that Frank Peep was a, had been a, a church goer obviously and the Japanese officer, who had been to America twice, they spoke English, he had been a merchant navy sailor before joining the Japan Navy. He could speak English and he had also attended a Christian Bible class. And so when Frank he arrived in front of him, uh, they were a long way from the main part of Rabaul, they were around the coast of it, he could see that Frank had um, had uh, an injury to his shoulder about there somewhere. And so then the, the army sent a truck to pick him up. And so he was put, put on the back of a truck and carted away. But, and just before they did that, they both said the Lord's Prayer together, which is quite a thing. Okay, he died two weeks later in Japanese hands. Mind you, at one stage there was about 77 prisoners in the camp there, airmen, mostly American the odd Kiwi, and but by the time the war finished, there were only seven left. Frank himself uh, lived for two weeks and then died, and the official story was that it was blood poisoning, which could be the case because our job was to stop any shipping getting and coming and going from Rabaul, so they were short of everything, food, medical supplies. To finish that story off, Minora Fujita, 19... 88, came to New Zealand, he, he went and lived in America after the war, married a Japanese-American girl who happened to be in Japan to go to school, but she was American-Japanese. And she married him and they went back and lived in America after the war in Los Angeles where he was a landscape gardener. He decided to, he met a historian one day uh, there who he told his story how he said the Lord's Prayer to this Allied Airman, but he didn't know if the Allied Airman was New Zealand, Australia, or, or American. So the historian got stuck in and he wrote and eventually discovered that the pilot was a New Zealander. And so they arranged that, uh, they put on a program on the American Remembrance Day about this Lord's Prayer business. And just after that, uh, the historian, Henry Sakata, his name is, although he's got a Japanese name, he's a third-generation American, but he's very interested in World War II. He wrote and discovered Frank Keith's brother living in Auckland, the Titarangi, so Minoru and his wife came to New Zealand and visited. Now, he was the last, he was the first Japanese to speak to Frank Keith. I was the last New Zealander to see Frank Keith because I was the one that flew behind the Ventura bomber when it dropped the rafts, and then we all shot through. So I was the last New Zealander to see him. 
uh, and Minoru was the first Japanese to speak to him in English. Well, Minoru came to New Zealand in 1988, visited Frank Keefe's and his wife and family, and he spent one night with us. So we spent a whole night talking about this episode, and he told me how he could see the bone. He said, white, there, white. So I would believe that he would be true. You know? So it is probably correct that he died as against being killed by. Right. Is any other? Sorry. You have to buy my book and you'll get it all. <laughs> <laughs>